Welcome to the Compass Church Podcast with Pastor Tim Jacobs, a ministry of Compass Church, Goodyear, Arizona. Join us now as we look into God's Word to be challenged and changed. Oh yeah, we're going to have fun today. You're going to be so glad that you did not go away on 4th of July, um, because that's like the pastor's biggest nightmare. You know, why can't holidays always just be on Wednesday or something? Like, you know, you don't leave for the weekend, just take work off. You know what I mean? Like, take three days of work off in the middle of the week. Anyway, I'm so glad you're here. I'm Tim Jacobs, I'm lead pastor here at Compass, also a member of the preaching team. And we've been on a series called Everyone Has Influence, Okay. And it's a series on leadership, gearing us up for what we're really excited about coming up, and in fact, next month, because it's already July 2nd, the Global Leadership Summit, which takes place August 10th and 11th. If you haven't signed up for it yet, you have this weekend and next weekend, and the price goes up. So if you've been on the fence, you got to say, hey, I'm going to do this. Take a chance. Invest in yourself. World-class leaders. It's going to be an amazing thing. It's going to be simulcast here. We've already got... um, well over 50 people signed up already, so, you know, and which is way past where we were last year at this time, but we, I mean, we have room for obviously way more, and you need to be a part of that. I'm telling you, it's going to really change your life. It really is. But we've been, we've been profiling different people throughout the Bible who weren't necessarily in positions of great power or authority, at least, but where they were, they, 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 Uh, chose to have influence right where they were. And it was risky and it was scary, but God was with them. And and leadership, as we said, more than anything else, we've been saying this every single week, leadership is about influence more than anything else. You're influencing the actions and the behaviors and the thoughts of the people around you right where you are. In fact, where God has placed you is the best place for you to start. So keep that in mind as we go through this. So today, we're going to look at the story of Esther. So, um, and so if you have a Bible, you can turn there. We'll be all over the place, and this is going to be fun. So, Esther, the story of Esther starts with the book of Esther, and the whole thing starts in 483 BC with a guy who is the Persian, the king of the Persian Empire. His name is Artaxerxes, and the Persian Empire went all the way from India to Ethiopia. It was a massive empire that spanned basically the known world at that point, and King Artaxerxes was the most powerful man in the world, and he um, lived and reigned from what was called the Citadel of Susa. So I have a little visual aids here. Now, this may or may not um, be a actual a school project that one of my kids did. That is not this Citadel of Susa. However, it's still kind of cool looking, and it's kind of a reminder. It's some castle in you know England or something. However, I thought it looked cool, and so I brought it as a little visual there of this kind of castle and um, a palace or a palatial kind of thing that maybe he would perhaps lived in. Now, there's a lot of characters in this story, so we have a few visual aids that we're going to use along the way. In fact, I'm going to move this down here and like this, and I'm going to take this and chuck it. Okay, so here's what happened. King Artaxerxes 
because he is the ruler of this entire empire and he rules 127 provinces within that empire and he has to kind of make thing make his presence known and make his power known. So he has like a six month expo, okay, where he invites all of the governors and who's who and <clears throat> high society people to, to attend and be a part of his celebration that he's having, of which a week of that whole 180 day expo kind of party that he's having is this intense, massive, crazy, 24 seven week long party where <clears throat> they literally, the bartenders are instructed, you are not to deny anyone alcohol. So they can be as drunk as a skunk. If they want more, you give it to them. And they just went all out. There was about probably 15,000 people who attended this kind of private party um, for King Artaxerxes celebrating his own wealth and fame and power. Now, because there's a lot of characters in this story, we'll start with King Artaxerxes, and here he is. Okay, now if you don't know who that is, you need to go watch Guardians of the Galaxy. That'll be something for you to do on this lovely July 4th weekend because you didn't go do anything else, so that'd be a great um, opportunity for you. So <clears throat> King Artaxerxes then throws this big giant party, and he has a wonderful queen. Now, by the way, this party is so crazy that they, um, oh, shoot. Here we go. We got to fix her really quick. So I'll put her over here, and then you'll see. She's, she's got problems. She's got a wardrobe malfunction going on. <coughs> All right. This is Queen, this is actually Queen Vashti. This is his wife. And hopefully she'll stand up. Okay. She has a hard time standing up. She's been a long week for her. Um, <coughs> here, we're going to lean her up over here. She'll be like. All right. All right, stay there. Now, you have to understand this place. They have silver, they have, they have silver and gold couches, okay? They have um, tile, mosaic tiled floors that these couches sit on. They have big marble columns that have blue and white linens that are just beautiful. I mean, majestic, lovely, okay? And the, when, when they serve the alcohol, it's in goblets <clears throat> made of gold, and all of them are different. Like, they're not just like, you know, go buy a set. They're all custom made. And so the wealth of this place is extraordinary. Now, during this week-long party, <clears throat> um, Artaxerxes is partying with all of his buddies, and she's throwing a party as well, Queen Vashti. And, and they're all mingling together, but there's kind of a party for the men and party for the women. Now, at some point during this party, it says that King Artaxerxes is in high spirits, which means that he is completely drunk as a skunk himself. And he calls for Queen Vashti to come out because he wants to parade her in front of all of his friends. And the text actually says wearing her crown. And a lot of the, rap, the rabbinical scholars believe that the, what that basically meant was wearing nothing but her crown. So he wants her to come out and strut her stuff so he can show all of his buddies as my wife hot. She hears this. She knows he's drunk. She knows all of his buddies are drunk. And she says, no way, not going to do it. I'm not going to play your dumb little game. This gets back to Artaxerxes, who gets very, very upset at this point, obviously, because he's just been, you know, snubbed by his wife. And it's embarrassing for him because he's got all of these governors from all of the places. And all of his advisors come to him and say, dude, you got a problem. Because if she stands up to you, then it's going to get around the kingdom that women can stand up to their men. There's going to be this feminist revolt. And then, you know, we're all, we're all going to be in big trouble. So what do we do? So he consults his advisors, and he's not really that great of a leader. He's kind of just a 
party guy who has this great wealth and power, but he's not really a strategic or deep or, you know, he's just not a great leader. He's just kind of a, he's kind of a tool. You know what I mean? So he asked his guys, what do you think I should do? And they said, you know what? You shouldn't kill her because that's kind of bad for him. So just banish her. Banish her from the kingdom. She should never be in your presence again. He goes, all right, good. So Queen Vashti, she's gone. Out of the picture. Now, what happens now is they've got to have a search for another wife because he can't just be single forever. So what they decide to do is the most intense version of The Bachelor before The Bachelor was ever The Bachelor. So they go on this massive empire-wide search for the next queen of the kingdom. And so it's basically this massive beauty contest where they look and they try to find the most beautiful woman they possibly can. Now enter at this point another character whose name is Mordecai. (laughs) Now Mordecai is a Jew and he is a citizen of this land and obviously the Jews were under the thumb of the Persians because the Persians conquered the Babylonians, the Babylonians had conquered the Israelites. So he's assimilated into this new society. And while they're having this amazing beauty contest, you have to understand what it is. They go and they find these women from all over the kingdom. They bring them in and they become part of the king's harem. Upwards of potentially 1,600 women. And they would spend um, basically a year getting ready for the, um, for the king. In fact, this is what it said. It said, before a young woman's turn came to go into King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women, six months with oil of myrrh, and six with perfume and cosmetics. Now, ladies, you may want to, like, you know, spend time working on yourself. This is excessive. I mean, this is totally crazy. But now Mordecai, he has under, in his family, because he's got extended family and everything else, he's got living with him this lovely, beautiful woman whose name is Esther. Also a fashionista Barbie. There she is. This is Esther. I found the most culturally appropriate Esther, or uh, yeah, Esther I could find, yeah. Um, She fits the bill perfectly, actually. So she's very beautiful. In fact, the Bible says she had a lovely figure and was beautiful. So, I mean, she's literally a model. I mean, she, and she gets, she gets in the service. They, 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 they grab her. They go, she should be in the running for this. They give her seven servants or attendants, and she goes into this very intense beauty makeover with all these oils and lotions and nips and tucks, and she's got Bob Harper training her, you know, whatever. Um, It's just craziness, right? Now, um, then what happens is, they, they, so what happens is they each go in, and it's kind, of a, it's kind of a sad thing. I mean, it wasn't really a great thing to be a woman back then at all, you know? I know there's a lot of complaining about women's stuff now, but back then it was really bad. So, like, if you were in the harem, you get one night with the king, like, you go in there and you spend the night with him. And if he likes you, he'd bring you back. But if he didn't like you, you just went back to the group with the other women, and you couldn't get released because you belonged to your property of the king. So, so again, upwards of potentially even uh, upwards of 1,600 women would just spend their whole life, and they're all beautiful women, but they'd spend their whole lives in obscurity. They'd be lonely. They wouldn't, you know, and the only guys around are eunuchs, and that's no fun, you know. Eunuchs are basically like, you know, hey, um, they, I mean, they look, they look all right, but they, they can't do anything, you know. They don't want to do anything because they're eunuchs. So they just basically spend their lives alone. It's kind of a sad thing. So Esther's turn comes up, and she spends the night with King Xerxes, and he likes her. He likes her a lot. In fact, he likes her so much that she actually wins the contest and she becomes queen 
Esther. Now remember, she's of Jewish origin because her uncle Mordecai is of Jewish origin as well. So now there's this Jewish woman who is the queen of Persia, the whole Persian empire. And you think, okay, that's a great story. You know, rags to riches, whatever, you know, here she is. She's like nobody. And now she's got all this power and authority and everything else. And you think the story would end there, but it doesn't. In fact, this is just where things get started. Because about five years go by, and somewhere along the line, Uncle Mordecai is hanging out by the city gate. And he hears commotion going on, because there's all this hustle and bustle and activity going on. There'll be a lot of people there. But in the midst of everything, he oversees or overhears a plot to assassinate this guy, King Artaxerxes. And so he's very worried about this, so he goes and tells his niece, who is now the queen, says, hey, by the way, there's, some, there's people out there trying to kill him. And so she tells him, and then they figure out who the guys are, and they get ratted out, and they get disposed of and dispatched of, probably get killed or whatever else, and then everything's fine. And it was such a big deal, though, that the Bible says that this event was recorded in the annals or the story or the biography of the king, right? This is like the, the, the days of, of King Xerxes. This story is written down now as part of history. But the king, because he's, you know, he's a king, he's got all kinds of things to do and parties to go to and stuff to oversee and people to kill and everything else. He's busy and he forgets, he kind of forgets about it. He just goes, you know, it just in one ear and out the other. So now keep that there in your mind because that's an important event for later. Now along the way, another character emerges and this guy, his name is Haman. Now again, if you haven't seen the Avengers or anything like that, this is, you can, this is a whole binge watching of movies you can do this weekend to catch up if you're like, who are those people? <clears throat> okay, so this is Loki, also known as Haman. Now Haman is introduced as an Agagite. An Agagite is another word for Amalekite. Now these guys um, have a lot of history because he's a Jew and he is an Amalekite descendant. Now they all live under the Persian Empire, but these guys for centuries have been at odds with one another. They've hated each other. In fact, it said in Exodus chapter 17, verse 15, that the Lord will be at war with the Amalekites for generations. In fact, even King Saul, if you know anything about biblical history, the reason why King Saul was rejected as king was because when they went to war with the Amalekites, he refused to kill all of them. He kept the king alive, and he, and he kept some of the stuff because he was greedy, and he didn't really care about what God wanted. And that was the start of his downfall. So the Amalekites have a huge role to play in the history of Israel as enemies. Now, for whatever reason... This guy, Artaxerxes, wants to honor him. He thinks he's great. He goes, you know what? This is my man. I want everybody to know how awesome he is. So he has all of these celebrations for, King, for, for Haman, who's kind of like his, you know, one of his right-hand guys. And he's a socialite guy, and he's popular. And so, so Xerxes wants to honor Haman. So they have all these celebrations where all these people would bow down to Haman and recognize him as this really, you know, wonderful, amazing dude. Everybody would bow down to him, except for who? This guy. Because it's kind of hard for him to bow anyway. I mean, he can do that. But anyway, um, so, so, he's, so he's every day, whenever he was around, everybody's, oh, there's Haman. Let's, let's hit the dirt, except for him. And so people start noticing, why isn't Mordecai bowing to Haman? And so, so they would get on him about this. And the biggest reason more than anything else is because Mordecai is a devout Jew. And it's not so much that he's an Amalekite, although it could be. But the bigger issue is, is that to bow to somebody means basically that you're giving them divinity. And he's like, I'm not doing that. 
So it gets back to, to Haman, and you have to understand something about Haman. Haman's got a lot of issues. You know, he's, he, he wants to be respected. He's, you know, he's got, he's got um, insecurity and pride, that weird mixture at the same time. He thinks he's great, but he doesn't really think he's great. You know what I mean? And so he's got all, that, all these issues, and he gets super, super angry about the fact that this guy, Mordecai, will not bow down to him. And so he decides that what he can do is actually get a chance to do what the Amalekites never had the chance to do, which is not only wipe out Mordecai, because he's got all this power in the most powerful kingdom in the world. He says, let's not only wipe out Mordecai, but let's wipe out all of the Jews in the whole kingdom. This is great. This is my chance to do what my ancestors never did, kill all the Jews once and for all for good. So he goes over to King Artaxerxes, and he says, Hey, King, now remember, these are not dolls, by the way. These are action figures. Okay, I don't, I don't play with dolls. I play with action figures. Haman goes to King Artaxerxes and says this. <clears throat> there is a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. See, this is how ethnic cleansing starts. There's accusations made against the group. Their customs are different from those of all other people, and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. So in other words, hey, king, let me, let me just, this guy, you know, there's this whole group of people. You don't need to be bothered with them. Let me kill all of them, and I'll give 10,000 talents of silver to the treasury. Right? And so the king um, took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do with the people as you please. Again, King Artis, he's, he's not a thinker, you know? He's not a, he just, he's like, you know, he's this blustery guy, and he's just walking around like, yeah, whatever, he just wants to go to the next party. Fine, you want to kill these guys? I don't know who they are, just kill them. You know, keep the money, man. You're cool, I got plenty of money. Look at me, I'm the king of Persia. This is how the whole thing is going down. Now, he gives him his ring, which is basically the sign of authority. So, you, you know, the whole seal. You stamp in that thing in the hot wax or whatever, and it dries. And that's the king's insignia. So he has basically absolute authority as though he was the king. Now, this word gets out. And here's the crazy part. So he goes back to all of his, his people, Haman does. And he says, all right, guys, we have the green light to kill the Jews. So when should we do it? Now they have their own little pagan gods, so they start casting lots, and they figure the gods will speak to them through the lots. So they kind of roll the dice to get the perfect day to kill the Jews. And the day happens to fall on the day before the Jewish celebration of Passover. That's a big deal, because what's Passover? Passover is the day they celebrate the freedom from Egypt. This is the biggest thing that's ever happened in the entire nation of Israel. Set free from 400 years of slavery, delivered by God, the promise that they are a people chosen by God, and now, the day before they are to celebrate their freedom and independence, they're all going to get slaughtered. So if you're a Jew, reading this story, later on down the line, if this was a TV show like on Netflix or something, this is the part where the music starts coming in, you know, and then they zoom in on Haman, who's like, <laughs> you know, and then they zoom in on Mordecai, who's like, mm, 
and they zoom in on Esther, who's clueless at this point, like, you know, but they don't realize, and all of a sudden, like, and then they cut, and then they roll the credits, and you have to wait till next week or whatever, and you're like, I want to know what happens next, because the tension is so big. I mean, they got this execution date right before this significant holiday. You got a Jewish queen in the most powerful empire in the world. You got this guy who's crazy, this guy who's the start of the whole thing in terms of his refusal to bow. I mean, it's all made perfectly for some climax kind of thing to happen. So the next scene, basically, Mordecai then hears about this, and he, he tears his clothes. He basically puts on a potato sack, and he's running around through the kingdom, and he's screaming and wailing, and, and so it gets back to Esther, like, hey, your uncle's going nuts. He's all upset. So what's he upset about? Well, so they send them, they threw messengers, because they didn't have text message back then. They had actual, actual messengers go and talk, and they have this conversation where Mordecai says, look, you guys, we're in deep trouble, because this guy, Haman, um, your husband's letting him kill all of us, including you. You have to go to your husband and tell him that he's got to put a stop to this thing. You're in the perfect position to do it. Well, her first response is, no way. I'm not doing that. Because you have to understand something. Even though she's the queen, it's not really like the healthiest marital relationship. Because this guy really honestly thinks he's a god of some kind. So he's above everybody, including her. And if anybody, including her, goes to him unannounced, like without being first summoned, they run a very high risk of getting killed right on the spot. Because if he's busy, if he's eating, or you know, he's getting you know, um, his hair done or something, or he's whatever, planning some execution of somebody or whatever, planning the next party, and he doesn't want to have time for you, he will not extend his royal scepter to you. And that's a sign of, I don't have time for this person. Kill them, <laughs> okay? They should never have come into my presence in the first place because they were not announced, or they were not summoned, I should say. So <clears throat> she says, I can't do that. And this is where really the most um, intense part of the story happens. Because then Mordecai says, fine, you might think that, but this is what he basically says. Do not think, this is in verse, chapter 4, verse um, 13. He sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. You're not going to get spared, honey. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. See, he had faith. He knew that there would be hope. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. In other words, Esther, who knows that all of this has happened, the five years you've been queen, and everything coming out from total obscurity to winning this contest of thousands of women to become the queen. And isn't it just kind of coincidental that now the Jews want to be exterminated and you're a Jew and you're the only person in the whole kingdom who could do anything about it? And I will just pause here for a second and say this. When we talk about leadership and we talk about influence, as you progress in your life and you're given more responsibility and there are more people looking to you and you get success of any kind, that success is not primarily for you. You have been put there by God. And while you might enjoy the blessing of some of that, as certainly she would have, you also have to understand that you are to use that position and use that success and use that influence to be able to 
do the purposes of God that he has planned for you, to be able to work out and live out what God has for you. So the question is, God, why do you have me here? What are you trying to accomplish that I maybe cannot see right now? So she has to wrestle with the most difficult thing in all of her life because if she goes before the king, she could get killed like that. She could die. So she thinks about it and sends this reply to Mordecai. Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. That's a good woman right there, right? That's a hardcore woman right there. You know what? Fine, I'll do it. And if I die, I die. If it costs me my life, then fine. I'm telling you guys, if you guys are single guys out there, this is the kind of woman you need to look for, okay? Like a woman that's got some serious courage and serious guts, but serious principle. It took, but she took her saying, you know what? I want you to fast. I want you to pray because it's going to take everything that I've got. So she comes up with a plan. Figuring that the king likes parties, she thought, I'll invite him to a party. See what happens. So she fasts, she prays. It's got to be the most, I mean, her stomach's got to be in knots. And finally the time comes. She goes in to the palace. She stands before the king. And he sees her. What are you doing here? Esther, what are you doing here? And he reaches for the scepter. And he holds it out. She's not dead. Thank God. She gets past that. In fact, he goes beyond that. He says, Esther, he says, it's so great to see you because they don't see each other all the time. Again, it's a weird marriage. And uh, he, says, he says, you know, what, what are you up to? I mean, what brings you here? I mean, you, you're, ask me anything you want. I'll give you half my kingdom. You know, he's just that kind of a guy. You know, he just says stuff. And so she says, well, you know, if it pleases the king, um, I thought it'd be fun for us to have a little party. You know, like a little afternoon party in the garden, you know, and like you can be there and Haman can be there. Just the three of us. What do you think? And Xerxes says, that'd be a great idea. I mean, I like Haman. He's an awesome guy, you know. And of course, you're beautiful and wonderful. I haven't seen you in like a month because it was really true. So yeah, I would let, let's, let's plan it. We'll, I, you know, consider it done. I'll be there. So um, they have this little party. And, th- you know, the next day they're there and there are just three of them and it's these little servants around giving them food and everything's going fine and it's nice music and whatever else and everything's beautiful. And, and finally, um, King Xerxes says to Esther, says, all right, so what's, what's the real reason that you're here? What do you want? And she says, well, and she, she pauses, she hesitates. And we don't really know why, but for some reason at that moment she felt like she could not say what was really on her mind. So she said, well, if it pleases the king, I'd like to be able to do this all again tomorrow. Now the same party, same place, same time, maybe different food, but just tomorrow. Can we do the same thing here tomorrow? And he's like, all right, I guess. I mean, this is cool. I mean, I got nothing else to do. Nothing on my calendar, you know, again, nothing crazy going on. No lands to conquer. So sure, I'm, I'm, I'm open. I'm open. Let's do it. So they plan it for the next day. Now <clears throat> that turns out to be the most fortuitous decision that she could have made. Because after the party's over, this first party, he leaves and he goes back to all of his people and the Bible says that he is so excited about himself. Because in fact, what it says is as he's leaving, 
Well, I should say this. As he's leaving, everything is going well. Um, he's feeling great about himself until as he's walking by the city gates, he sees him again. And there he is, and he won't bow again to him. And that makes him so mad because he's got insecurity issues, you know? And he just, he hates this guy. Now he knows he's going to kill him in just a small amount of time, but he's still like, the guy doesn't get it. So this is what the scripture says. Calling together his friends and Zeresh, his wife, Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways the king had honored him and how he'd elevated him above the other, the other nobles and officials. And that's not all, Haman added. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave. And she has invited me along with the king tomorrow. So not only did I get to go today, I get to go tomorrow. And he's like, this is so great. But then, listen. But all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai is sitting at the king's gate. He never bows to me. So he's all, you know, he can't, I can't enjoy my life because of him. He's crying and everything. So, his, so his, his people get together and say, look, this whole Mordecai thing has got you all in a tizzy. Why don't you just take care of it now? Why don't you get, get your guys, build a big giant gallows. Build it really big, like 75 feet high. And then go to the king and tell him you just want to hang Mordecai on it. He'll let you do it, and then you're done, right? And we'll be done with this guy, and then we can kill the rest of the Jews later on. He says, that's a great idea. So he builds a gallows. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> I got to position this right. This is what they told me to do. Now, this may or may not <clears throat> have been in someone's garage and used as a squat, a do-it-yourself squat stand um, that worked quite well, actually. Um, and then was uh, retrofitted to make a gallows. So he's very big, as you can see, not quite to scale, but pretty good. And so he builds this gallows, and, and it's all ready to go. And now here's where the story gets really interesting. Because he goes to King Xerxes to basically get permission to have Mordecai hung on the gallows. But that night, the night between the two parties, the king can't sleep. And he can't sleep. And he's like, he's troubled in his spirit, you know, maybe he's got heartburn or something like that. So he gets one of his attendants and he says, hey, he says, can you read me a bedtime story because I can't sleep? And what better bedtime story to read me than the story of me? So <clears throat> he gets one of his guys who's going to read him a story. This is another guy. This is the rabbit guy or raccoon guy, I mean. The raccoon from, yeah. Okay, I know you can't all see him because of the, but we'll put him right, we'll put him right here. And so um, he says, uh, will you read me a story? So I'd love to read you a story. So they start reading him a story and, and he's laying there, he's listening to the story. And all of a sudden they get to the part in the king's history where, remember him? Where Mordecai uncovered the plot to kill King Xerxes. And King Xerxes hops about a bed. He goes, I remember that now. I mean, he saved my butt. He goes, what did we ever do to reward this guy? And he says, we didn't do anything, man. We forgot about it. He goes, well, we got to fix that. He goes, go, go out and find someone out in the hallway. Well, who happens to be out in the hallway at that point? But this guy, Haman. He says, oh, Haman, perfect. Bring Haman in. So Haman comes in and Xerxes is there. And he says, Haman, listen to me. I got a question for you. If you were me and you were the king and you wanted to honor somebody who was really special, who just did this really amazing thing for you and you really wanted the whole kingdom to know how amazing and special and wonderful this guy is, what would you do? Now, Haman thinks he's talking about him. So he goes, well, I'll tell you. 
In fact, the scripture says it's the best. He says, for the man the king delights to honor, have them bring a royal robe the king has worn and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on his head. Then let the robe and horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honor and lead him on a horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. And Xerxes says, Haman, that is a brilliant idea. Here's what I want you to do. All that stuff that you just said, I want you to do that for Mordecai. (laughs) What? Yeah. All that stuff that you just said. I want you to be the dude that leads him through the city, put him on a horse, and do all the stuff that you just said. Really? Yeah. Do it now. So presumably, most likely, the next morning, Mordecai is summoned, and Haman leads him through the entire city, wearing a robe, wearing a crown, and and yelling out to everybody, this, speaking of Mordecai, is what is done for the man that the king delights to honor. Then he has to say it over and over and over again for hours. You gotta imagine, I mean, this guy's really got problems, all right? He's like, ugh, you know? And so, so so he goes home, after this, and, and he's, he's explaining this whole thing. <coughs> Excuse me, that happened. Now, as this is happening, then the other servants come and they grab him because he's got another dinner date or late afternoon lunch date with the king and the queen. So here they are back together again. And now it's time for, you know, little luncheon round two. So they're out there having their wonderful time. And all of a sudden the king says again, the king says, all right, Esther, come on, seriously. What do you want? What's the story? And now it's her moment. And she says this. If I found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition. Grant me my life. Keep me alive. And spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. That's dramatic, right? Not just destroyed, but killed and annihilated. Um, Killed till we're dead. Um, <coughs> excuse me. If we had merely been sold as male, male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet because no such distress would have justified disturbing the king. So if it had just been slavery, I would have never left you alone because slavery, who cares? Not that big of a deal. But to kill us. And the king says, Who is it? Who would dare threaten my queen, this beautiful hot woman? Who would dare go after her and her family? Just let me on him. Who is he? Because, right? you know, he's again, he's not that bright. And he's just like, right? And the queen says, hmm, Haman. This is like a bad day for Haman. <laughs> and the king's like, what? You? You, what are you talking about, right? So finally he connects the dots because, duh, right? Connects us to Haman. You're the guy. You're the one behind all this. He gets so mad. He doesn't know how to like deal with anger. So he goes outside. He's like pacing. Now while that's happening, Haman comes over to Esther because he knows he's in serious trouble. And at this point now she's like, boom, she's got it. She goes over and she sits on one of those golden couches, you know, and she's just like fanning herself. And, uh, and he comes over and he's bowing down to her. And he's like begging for his life, you know, and she's like, talk to the hand, right? <clears throat> that is an old 90s thing, by the way. My wife used to do it really, really well when we first met. <laughs> okay, and, and uh, then, 
so now he's down at her feet and he's like kissing her and everything else. Well, he comes, the king comes back in and he sees her down there, like, or sees him down there and it looks like he's getting fresh with his wife. And now he's like, will you? and he literally says like, will you actually try to, you know, make a move on my wife in, the pr- in my presence? And I, say, I am done with you. You are dead. You are gone. You are to be executed immediately. But how should we do it? How should we do it? And this guy says, I have an idea. He says, Haman, he built him gallows for Mordecai. It hadn't been used. Brand new. And the king says, that's a great idea. So immediately that day, Haman gets hung on his own gallows. And the Jews are saved. And that is the story of Esther. Now, what are some things that we can take away from this story? Well, there are several things. First of all, number one, God elevates you for his purposes. You, as you advance in life with more responsibility, with more money, with more influence, it's not primarily for you. It is for him to accomplish his purposes through you. That's very, very important. Otherwise, we will get confused and think that this whole life is really just about God continuing to give us more and more favor because he just loves us and we're so great. He does love us and he has redeemed us and he wants to look out for us, but he has plans he's working behind the scenes. And you may not be able to see what those plans are right now. Did you know that the book of Esther is the only book in the Bible where the word God is never mentioned anywhere? It's as though he's not even in the Bible or in the book. But he is. He's all over the book. And that's the point. And when the Jews read this story, they know the invisible hand moving behind all of the various episodes and twists of irony and fate. And there may be twists of irony and fate happening in your life right now and you have no idea what's going on. And it may seem that the word God is not showing up in your story right now. But if you look back, he's all over the place. He's all over the place. He works within culture. He works within challenges and circumstances. He works within human power to bring about his purposes. Secondly, fortune favors the brave. When it comes especially to believing in God, and that's a common saying, but I think it's perfect for this, for this application of this message. Fortune favors the brave. It's been a while since I've quoted Dietrich Bonhoeffer, so I'm allowed to now because it's been like a couple months. Um, <clears throat> but I love this quote. Daring to do what is right, not what fancy may tell you, valiantly grasping occasions, not cravenly doubting. Freedom comes only through deeds, not through thoughts taking wing. Not just thinking. It comes through actions. Faint not fear, uh, faint not nor fear, but go out to the storm and the action trusting in God whose commandment you faithfully follow. Freedom, exultant, will welcome your spirit with joy. And there's some of us, see, you can either spend your whole life saying, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. Or you sense the call of God in your life and you just begin to move forward. And you know, my wife 
as we've made changes throughout our lives and we've tried taken steps and tried to, to move things forward and we ever get to those, those points like, okay, should we do this or not? And she always says, you know, two things. She always says, you know, God's brought us this far. But the other thing she says is, take a step and if God doesn't want you to do it, he'll close the door, you know? And, and I think a lot of us maybe have spent time with all kinds of doors open, but we're just too afraid to go through them. And it's very easy to live in a virtual world when you can spend hours and hours playing video games. I'm not everything against video games, but where you can live a virtual existence where you can do all these really cool things and go to all these really cool places online or on a screen, but never actually live them. Life is an adventure that's meant to be lived in the service of God out of faithfulness to him. And I'm telling you, you're never going to pray more than when you're scared when you're desperate. That's all I know. When, I, when, I'm, when my prayer life is good, it's usually because I'm in a situation where I really believe that the only way I'm going to get out is, is God. That's not a bad place to be. And finally, don't end up on the wrong side of God's plan. You don't want to end up on the wrong side of God's plan. Perhaps the most chilling verse in the whole book was when Haman's wife and friends found out that he had, uh, had to parade Mordecai through the street. And when he went home and told him about it, and he's all upset. And their response, they said to him, his advisors and his wife Zeresh said to him, since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. Even they knew. You see, I don't know how it all works, but there's something about the people of God that he chose his people and he defended his people. You know, it's even, even amazing to me today. You look at 80 years after World War II, the nation of Israel is thriving. It wasn't even a nation during World War II. The Jews are being exterminated like crazy. Now it's a nation that is one of the most technologically advanced uh, technological leaders in the world. A lot of the technology you hold in your hand with your iPhone, your iPad, your laptop, that stuff would not be possible were it not for the ingenuity that came out of Tel Aviv. And yet Germany, to this day, 80 years after World War II, yeah, they've got a few cool things going. Porsche, BMW, Volkswagen. But as a culture, they don't know who they are. They don't know who they are. All they know is we did something horrible and we can't quite yet come to terms with it. And there's something about God having his blessing on his people. And, I know, and believe me, you have to have grace in your life. You have, you have to be able, it's only by grace through faith that you're saved in Jesus. So you, 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 without Jesus, you, you're not saved. But I, I look at the history of the world and I go, when God says he's gonna have his hand on his people, he had his hand on his people. And he's had, had his hand on you as well. But don't be on the wrong side of his plan. Don't be like Haman and think that, nah, the word God isn't mentioned in this book, so the word God must not be real. Do not be on the wrong side of what God's trying to do. Don't fight against it. Don't ignore it. This is your opportunity to realize that we are actors on a stage playing a role that has been ordained for us and that is going to bring God glory ultimately in the end. And if you're on the wrong side of that, <clears throat> now is your chance to get on the right side of it. You've got to before it's too late. You've got to. And this starts by, see, here's the deal. If it wasn't for Esther being in that position of power, she never could have rescued the Jews. And when she rescued the Jews, she paved the way for what? The Messiah, the Savior. Because God put her in a position of power. We have Jesus today. It's crazy. So what role are you playing? And maybe it starts by saying, I need to realize it. The hand of God has been all over my life and now it's time for me to give my life to him. Some of you need to do that today. 
Let's pray together. If you would, just take a moment and bow your heads and close your eyes. God, in this um, kind of silly rendition of this amazing story that you have preserved for us, some of us here <clears throat> need to come to grips with you and turn our lives over to you and realize that <laughs> the most powerful people in the world are merely just pawns in the story you're writing and the game you're playing that you will win. And so if there are people here today who are saying, you know, I've been on the wrong side of this whole thing. I need to be on the right side of it. I need to stop running from God. I need to put my trust in Jesus. If you're, that's you today, just tell him, God, today, I need to put my trust in you. Today, I need to make Jesus my Savior. Today, I acknowledge you've been writing this story the whole time. Your plan has been perfect the whole time. I confess I've been running from it, but I'm ready to run back. I'm ready to turn my life over to you. You are God. Others of us, we've been doubting our purpose. We've been doubting whether God is at work in our lives. The whole reason for the story is to remind us that God is working in the most common ways that you just cannot see. Within culture, within your place of business, within the people who are in authority over you, and when the time is right, when your time is right, your moment will come. And that's when you speak. And that's when you act. And that's when you move. And God, give us the courage to do those things the way Esther did. To be a leader like she was. Afraid, scared out of your mind, but doing it anyway. And if we perish, we perish. In Jesus' name. Thanks for joining us today. Why not ask God to change your life so you can go and change your world for Him? To find out more about our church online, go to www.compasschurch.info and we'll see you next time.